0: Chapter 26 today, now, there are a couple of ways to do Christmas sermons. Um, there's doing the Christmas message, which is Matthew chapter 1 and Mark, or in Luke chapter 2, year after year after year, and there's a joy in that. I love, I love the Christmas passages. Um, or there's the chance to do something new. Knowing that there are some people that only go to church once or twice a year and then hear the same message again and again and again, I like both. I like both. So last night, we had our our candlelight Christmas Eve service, and it was the traditional Christmas passages, and then this morning, because there are 1189 chapters in the Bible, but only 52 weeks a year, and if you do the same two chapters for at least one of those weeks, and I know some churches will stretch that out to a month. So we're going to do Acts chapter 26 today, finish up our series on disciples um, and the message of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I think that is still part of the gospel message, which fits into Christmas. Um, because I've, I've known people raised in the church, or at least they've told me they've been raised in the church their whole life, and n- not know who Moses is or who King David was. Or somebody told me they didn't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, and, yet, and, and in the same sentence, they were bragging that they'd been in the church their whole life. Um, I, I, our kid I'm always, I've always got that fear that the kids I, I appreciate what Brennan's been doing with the kids systematically working through in Um systematically working through the whole Bible, because too many kids learn Noah's Ark, Daniel in the lion's Den, David and Goliath, and that's it. Um, and we have a nation that knows some of the Christmas story and the account. It's not a story, is it? It's it's real. Some of the Christmas account, but they don't get it, but they know the account, and I, I want to dig deeper into that. So what does the Christmas message bring? And the answer is it brings us joy, absolute joy, but opposition from the world. Satan isn't taking December 25th off. He still wants to see the church fail. He loves it, when people take their eyes off what we talked about last night, the whys of the christmas why God sent Jesus to earth, and we focus on all the stuff, the angels and the shepherds and the wise men, and uh, he loves it when we lose the true meaning for the window dressing. God sent Jesus to earth to redeem mankind through his sacrifice. Satan loves it when we skip that part, and focus on the other stuff. And he would love for people to let it turn into just another story. So today, something a little bit different. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. It offends the world. It's always offended the world. It will continue to offend the world, and that's okay. It's not our job to make the gospel palatable. It's not our job to water it down, create a version that the world will like, because that doesn't save. Um, disciples have a testimony. May, may cost us. Today I want to examine Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 26 in light of the cost that it, that it was for him. So here's our backdrop. Uh, Paul has lots of enemies. And in picking up these enemies, he has been arrested um, by the Romans and he is now, in Acts chapter 26, he is on trial for being a Christian before King Agrippa. Um, and, and, uh, and, and there are people that want him dead, and they're, and they're trying to get him executed. And he stands before King Agrippa, a vassal of the emperor of Rome, and this is his defense. So we are in Acts chapter 26, verse, verse 9. Paul says, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus and then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I've had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and, as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Well, obviously we are called to believe the gospel, the good news that God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. I I have heard more times, some of you may have heard this, I've heard more times in my life than I can count. Um, How can you believe in the Bible you are so educated? That's not a compliment. That's not even a backhanded compliment. But I've heard that a lot. We live in a time when the very message of Christ Christmas he is heard less and less and believed less and less once upon a time in a town far a long time ago in a town far away a virgin gave birth to a king in a stable and he died and he came back to save his people when we proclaim the christmas the christian message people shout what governor festus shouted you're insane you are out of your mind. You've read too much stuff. You've read too many fairy tales, and you believe them. The world puts Jesus in the same category as Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy, and maybe Zeus and Aphrodite and uh, other ancient gods, and quite frankly, Luke Skywalker and Spider Man. They're all and Mothman. They're all. They're all just slumped into this mythical category. The world thinks. And, I, and let me. Let me. Let me. That is always my fear for for kids. My parents didn't raise me believing in Santa. My my fear for children is always when they outgrow the tooth fairy. Will they outgrow Jesus? Have we we lumped them into this nebulous fictional category? And when they outgrow some, they outgrow... That's always been my fear. It's always... I like to talk about the Christmas story because that's the phrase I was raised on. But it's not a story. It's an account. It's the truth. And I always have this fear that when that people think that we're talking about something fictional, that kids will, will one day outgrow the Christmas message, but it's, it's real. It's not a myth. It's not like, it's not like Mothman or, or Spider-Man or, or, or anything else that's fictional. Uh, the world thinks that we are crazy for what we believe, and I get that. The wor- and I get that. If you don't believe that this book is true, I, I, I get that the Christian faith is nonsensical, to the, to the world. I, I, people are not born believing in this. And, and there was a time when, when, when the U.S. was a very Christian country, and it was just kind of assumed that you were born and raised in the church. That was a long time ago. Um, that's not the world that our kids are being raised in. And so it's unfair to expect people outside of the church to just assume this book is true. They think it's a myth. We don't agree with them. As Paul says, we're not insane what we say is true and reasonable, and I believe that. I'm a very, I, I'd like to think I'm a very reasonable person. And I value reason because God created the mind, the human mind, to be reasonable. And I think that the Christian faith is reasonable. There is a God, he created the world, and he loves the world. Now, there is also sin, things that he does not approve of. Sin separates us from God. It does. I mean, that's just the definition and, and separates us from God permanently because he is holy. It's, it's not just a pet peeve of him. It doesn't just annoy him. If the Bible is true, he despises sin. He hates it. And so to destroy sin, he sent his son to earth to be born and then to die. To, to free us from sin. And those who accept that sacrifice for their sin are restored to their loving creator. I'm gonna be honest, I feel that is perfectly reasonable. I don't I don't think it's a stretch. I, I have the, the Christmas message makes greater sense to me than some of the things that we're we're reaching for. The problem I have with, with the big big bang theory. Uh, that the universe was created from an explosion, is that the laws of science tell me that objects in motion stay in motion and objects at rest stay at rest and things don't just randomly explode. You still need something to cause the explosion. So there's still this flaw. Um, I, I've, I've read enough Dawkins and, and, and Hawking and, and these other guys. You, they talk about there's still this problem that the Big Bang has to come from somewhere. Even if you believe in the Big Bang, it doesn't actually solve the where did the where did the universe come from problem. Because where did that where did that initial particle come from? What caused it to explode? But but the Bible message is there is a God. He is eternal. He is immortal. He is all powerful. He created the universe. He created it for a purpose, and for all the things that you're, you're the purpose. He created the universe to create we who would live with Him in fellowship, and because. He's not just a creator, but because he is loving, he doesn't make us. We have the chance to choose sin or choose God. That's because he loves. One, I heard one, one preacher say that hell is the ultimate expression of God's love. Think on that. We don't have, he doesn't make us live with him forever. He loves us enough that though it breaks his heart, he gives us a choice. And if we don't want to live with God, he's made a place for those who don't want to live under his lordship, under his kingship, under his rules. That, to me, makes sense. That there is a God that, is, that created the universe. doesn't doesn't actually take as much faith. Some, I think my father pointed out it takes less faith to believe that God made the universe than it does that there was a particle infinitely small, infinitely dense, infinitely hot. It, despite... Objects in motion stay in motion, objects at rest, stay at rest. It exploded one day, it came from nowhere, it always existed till it didn't. That takes a whole lot more belief than there is a God, and he created everything, and he created us, and he loves us. To me, that's an easier belief, frankly. But here's our problem today. Kids go to church for an hour or two a week, maybe three if we get them on Wednesday night. Uh, They're in school five days a week. We make our kids go to school. We often don't make them go to church. That might show some priorities. And so we have an entire generation of kids in church raised to believe, well, not school stuff. Big Bang and humans are descended from single-celled organisms that evolved. But, but this is mythical. But, but the Christmas story is, is a myth. And that creates a problem that we have so many Christians that believe in, in everything but the Bible. That's a problem for the church. We've lowered the bar on Christianity, and I, think that we have a weak, I know that we have a weaker church because of it. We need to raise again the banner of Christ and his word, press what is non-negotiable, the Christmas story, the Christmas account. The virgin birth, the angels, even even the magi, I think that they didn't show up. <laughs> Jesus was living in a house by the time they showed up. I don't, I don't think they showed up at the stable. I'm not really sure they're part of the Christmas message. But we've made them part of the Christmas. All of that is true. And they're not optional beliefs. We're not insane to believe that the Christmas message is truth. Because I'm not sure we take the Christmas message out and try to deconstruct it and say some of this isn't true, I'm not sure what we're left with. But I don't think we're left with enough to call it Christianity. This is the heart of the Christian faith. We have to believe the good news. But believing the good news is not enough. Then we have to live it. So I taught briefly at a college in southern Illinois. And uh, in checking my credentials the Illinois Board of Higher Education approved me to teach any language I wanted, every language that I wanted. They, they looked at my background, they looked at all the language I've studied, and they said, this guy knows linguistics well enough that he can teach any language. That's pretty neat. I was pretty, pretty, pretty honored by that, that sign, that, that show of faith. A um, couple of degrees in, in ancient linguistics, studied a dozen languages in college. Um, at the college I was teaching, they were going to have a mythology class. And I think that that's—I think studying ancient religions is important. So I said, I'd like to teach this class. I, I, I've studied ancient cultures. I've studied ancient languages in particular. Um, and I would like to teach that. But I wasn't allowed to teach that because my degrees were in Bible and language and not literature. And I have a problem with that. And the reason I have a problem with that is that wasn't literature. That was what people believed. This, this is not literature. I, there are some literary aspects to this book, yes. But this is not Moby Dick or the Three Musketeers. Um, this is not... Writers did not sit down and say, what would make a good... If I was making a good story, somebody in here would be a better good guy. One of, my, one of the things I love about the Bible is that every person in this book is flawed, and the Bible loves to show that. King David, Moses... Abraham, these guys mess up a lot. Peter, right? Paul, these guys make mistakes, which is the point of the Bible. We all do. I relate to these people. I'm glad that they, but, but if I was writing a story, I would make them very heroic because that would be the literary thing to do to show that they were uh, amazing heroes. But, but the Bible isn't written like literature, it's not literature. It's faith. It's a book. Of, the purpose is not to tell a good story. The purpose is to solve our needs. And so I have to. I, I was very frustrated that I wasn't qualified to teach ancient religions because I didn't have a literature degree. This is not a book of literature. I think the biggest hurdle that we as Christians have is not in believing in God, which again is insane to the outside world, but but we believe it. The hard part is surre- once we believe in him, to surrender to him, to move from head to heart, to live our faith in our daily lives. For too many, Christianity is academic. It's, in, it, it's, it's head knowledge. We think that there is a God, we, and, and we think that, there, that this is enough. There is a God, and that's enough. Um, but that's not faith. James tells us that demons believe in God that doesn't mean they're saved. Paul says in verse 20 that we should repent and prove our repentance by how we live, by our deeds. That's what faith is. I don't care if you believe in baby Jesus, and I don't think God cares if you believe in him. Faith is not what you believe in, but what you do. What difference does Christ make in your life? I sleep better at night, Jason. I, I, I have this feeling of peace and I sleep better at night. Yeah, you can get NyQuil for that. <laughs> what I want to know is, do your neighbors sleep better because you're a Christian? Because Jesus has changed your life. Do your coworkers sleep better? Is the rest of the world a better place because you are becoming more and more Christ-like? Does your faith matter more than just head knowledge? The worst thing that we can do at Christmas time is to gather together and tell fairy tales. This isn't another fairy tale to add to the island of misfit toys. This is truth. And if it's truth, then our lives change, or it doesn't matter. If all we do is think about Jesus, I don't think that makes us Christians. We have to live Jesus. If if we don't, If we don't know what that means, we're probably not in our Bibles enough. Let's start there. It's not the end, but the Bible is is God's tool, his roadmap for for how we come to be Christians. If we don't know what it means to be a Christian, we probably need... Let's at least start with some more Bible reading. Um, and, And then let's sit down and talk if you have any concerns or questions about that. Don't let your faith be a fairy tale or mythology or literature, faith moves lives. Okay, so we believe it, we live it, and then based, and then, but that's not where it ends, is it? Because then we tell others, we share it. So in high school, everybody has that movie that all of your friends get into, and Fanatic, I, maybe not everybody, but at least my generation that you fanatic. In my high school, people were fanatical about Monty Python's Holy Grail. It was a very sacrilegious movie. Um, we watched it weekly. When, when I became a locksmith, um, and my first week there, I was presented with blazing Saddles. Because you could not work at the place that I worked at if you had not watched Blazing Saddles. They referred to this movie constantly. These guys, these locksmiths of a dozen, of them, these guys watched this movie frequently and, and, and loved it. So, think—I still find it very amusing that the movie Die Hard is now considered a Christmas movie. But I know people that religiously watch Die Hard every year at Christmas time. Um, I have so many friends that will be watching the movie Die Hard today. Uh, think of your—think of your favorite movie. Um, a movie that you routinely can go back to, watch it again, and, and not, get, not get bored. I, um, Roger Ebert. Do you guys remember Roger Ebert, the movie guy? Um, I, Roger, Pam's hometown is Champaign, Illinois, and Champaign-Urbana is a twin city. And Urbana was Roger Ebert's hometown. And once a year, he would come back to Urbana, and he would rent the local movie theater, and he would show his favorite movies, which was pretty neat. Um. And uh, the only one I caught with, and he would be there, and he would explain why these, the only movie, of course, I watched with him was Tron because it was the only sci-fi movie he really liked. Um, But when asked what his favorite movie was, he said it may be the most cliched answer ever. He said, but Citizen Kane is perfect. He said, and I can watch that movie so many times, uh, and it never gets old. We all probably have that movie, or uh, the sci-fi channel used to show Star Wars every year at Thanksgiving. I don't know if they still do. Um, and so every year, I would come home from college on Thanksgiving break and watch the Star Wars trilogy when it was a trilogy uh, on on TV. And and I like the star. I think Star Wars is a great movie. It doesn't doesn't get old. Now that I have my daughter, I would say that the most watched movie in my life was Jim Henson's Labyrinth. It's probably the movie I've seen more than any other, and I still like it. I could still watch it today. Books. There I, there are books that we re, re- that we might reread. Um, I have a friend that rereads The Lord of the Rings every Christmas. I don't know why. At, well, I don't know why at Christmas time, but he rereads it every Christmas. Um, I had a student that read the Circle trilogy every year. Every year would read it again. I, there's no book that I read every year, but I have read the Chronicles of Narnia more times than I can count—seven or eight times at least—and um, and I and I would read them again. I still enjoy them. Being familiar with them doesn't ruin it. Quite frankly, I think it kind of enhances it. I, I get deeper into it. There are things I am anticipating, but there are tiny little details that sometimes I might miss uh, the first four or five times through. And, and, and my mind is free. And yeah, Christmas comes every year. And yeah, we read the Christmas message year after year. But I think it's a joy if you can watch Star Wars again or Die Hard or whatever, again and again, labyrinth, if you can read Narnia or the Lord of the Rings, if, if there are things that you can experience, even though it's the same thing again and again, how much more joy the Word of God, the birth of our Savior. Um, pe- why do people re- Why do I have friends that reread the Lord of the Rings every year? You know the word they're fanatics. They're they 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 want to dig deep into it. And I like my science fiction, but I want to be a fanatic about Jesus. And so what if I've heard the Christmas account year after? In fact, frankly, last night we read the Christmas account at the candlelight service, and this morning in Sunday school, James and I read it again because I love I love the Bible and I love the I love the Christmas account, and I. And I still take joy in those words. So what if the Bible gets familiar? In fact, that's the best way. That's how we know its truth, how we learn it. Paul had been reading the scriptures all his life. He knew them inside and out. He was, he was, he was among the Pharisees. He was, he, they were important to him. They made him seem like a fanatic to Governor Festus. We're all fanatics about something. Whether it's trains or baseball or hunting or days of our lives or shoes or purses or comic books. We're all fanatical about something. We like to share. We like to tell people about our hobbies and what we enjoy. And it's fun to find other people that are into the same hobbies. All of us have something that we love to get into. Get into Jesus. He matters. And if we're into him, we'll share him because he matters. There isn't so many people of fear that we don't want to seem fanatical about our faith that will seem you know that, that's just for preachers but we don't want to be we don't want to be called a holy roller. Um, and, and I don't get why that is. Maybe there's, a, maybe there's a fear that if we get too into our faith God will send us to Nineveh or, or Africa against our, our will. But he doesn't work that way. For, he doesn't work that way. First off, having spent time in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, they're surprisingly fun. Um, jungle living is, but more than that, we still have our free will. God doesn't make us do anything, right? I mean, we give the choice to follow Him. In ministry, He gives us the choice of how we serve with Him. Um, God doesn't. God doesn't force us. It's not how He works. Um, but he does want you to share his message of love wherever you are. Um, we, we need him shared here in Elkins. Christmas is a great time to not only consider our testimony, but who we're sharing it with. Our goal is not to be casual admirers of Jesus, but completely sold out. And so we're our hymn of decision. I've lost track. Is it 223? Is it 181? No, we've got we have a special. Our hymn of decision is special. Um, our God has been so good to us. We have all that we could ever need through Jesus Christ. For some, he's just a story and he's not a savior. For some, he's a savior but he's not their savior. Today is the day to make Jesus your savior if he is not. let's talk, Stick around after church. Let's talk or, or make an appointment, whatever it takes. But it is not the de- it's not the most important decision that cannot be put off. Um, because it's so important, it's, it's eternity changing. Jesus must be our Savior, our Lord. If you haven't made that decision, I'd like to invite you to do so. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristelkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week.